Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 112 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the Shark to Crab Gottlieb. And I say always, but, like, I'm not here all the time, I guess. I am super thrilled you're back. I mean, Cedric was a great fill-in. I had a lot of fun doing the cast with him. But this is prime Jerry time for me. I, I need my Jerry hours in. We need to talk about all these cards. I missed you terribly last week. I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm excited to know your opinion on all of this cool stuff that has been dumped on us over the last week. It feels like the pace is fast and furious now. There's a new incredible card every single day, and I need to check in with you and see what's up. I have built hella decks. I'm sure. There's there's so much to build. Uh, you can just go off. I'm actually obsessed with Legacy right now somehow. I don't know how that got onto my <laughs> radar, but I'm just building Legacy decks all the time. It's crazy what captures your attention at any given moment. I knocked that out during the break, and I think... Salamander Drake is probably the card that you're excited about. Right. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I could go back and redo a bunch of work, but I was mostly just getting the Arclight Phoenix stuff out of my system for Legacy. So we checked that off. I'm, I'm doing those two things together now, and I'm yeah, of pretty course. interested in it. It looks, it looks nice. There's a lot of potential with that card. One of the more exciting Legacy prints we've gotten in a while, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, standard print too. We'll, we'll yeah, talk about uh, it, I'm sure. Absolutely. But... Yep, we'll have lots to say. So... I don't know if this is true. Was that the first episode I've ever missed? It's it's certainly the first one I've done without you. You would have to go back to prior to my time on the cast. Maybe there was one that Andrew and Michael did together. I, I, I don't know. You've never missed one with me present. And I, I remember recording at least one with you where I was like a little bit sick and everything. But it, I mean, you get a really nasty ear infection. It knocks you out for like a week at least. And that's kind of where I was. So I apologize, but I'm back. Yeah. You were down and out, man. Two GPs taken off your schedule. And I know how much you love GPs. So that's a pretty big hit for you. Well, I love West coast GPs. I'll be specific. Right. Yeah. And these, (laughs) these were West coast GPs about as close as you can get for us. And I played a lot of UMA leading up to Vancouver and I was working on modern a lot and yeah, uh, it it kind of sucked, and I'm I'm sad I missed everyone, but oh well. Well, I'm sure there will be future GPs, and we're coming up on our coverage debut very soon now, just a few weeks out. We get that trip to look forward to. You're going to see lots of fun people out in the Midwest in Indianapolis, so that'll be cool. I'm looking forward to collecting my tokens. Yeah, I haven't gotten my hands on mine yet either, and I, I can't wait. I'm just going to like stash them all over my house. My wife runs into me throwing a squirrel at her. <laughs> On a regular basis. Well, no, we, we have to make a collection of them and then give them away on the, the patron. Patreon. That as well. We will certainly do that. Nice so. sign tokens for everyone. Ooh, sign. I don't know. That might be a higher tier. We'll see. Oh, come on. Give the people <laughs> what they want. So shark to crab. Why? Uh, it's one of those things like it, it's so stupid. It's good. And this checks that box. It's, it's a very, very silly magic card. I appreciate it. I thought it was fun. 
Uh, I like times when magic isn't taking itself too seriously. One of the things I really like is like magic not taking itself super seriously in main sets. And the other thing I really like, which I don't think we'll ever see again, is referencing real world like literary works. Like the whole theme of Arabian Nights is so cool. And even bad cards like Frankenstein's monster, the fact that that exists just makes me really happy. Probably never going down that road again. So I guess I have to settle for my shark to crabs at this point. That's okay. I think that's good enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lot. A shark to crab being present in magic is is a big deal. So I, I shouldn't sound too down about finally getting a card like this. Well, we have had a lot of previews over the last week. And I think our, our few shows uh, leading up to this one were kind of light as far as actual previews we had to talk about. We were talking about every single card and now... Over half the set has been previewed. We have a lot of hits, and I think we're going to try and do like 30 cards. So strap in. You ready? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to do here. We're going to start with Domri Chaos Bringer. So we finally have our third Planeswalker. This is uh, 2RG, five starting loyalty for a legendary Planeswalker Domri, plus one add R or G. If that mana is spent on a creature spell, it gains Riot. Minus three, look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal up to two creature cards from among them and put them into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. And minus eight, you get an emblem with at the beginning of each end step. Create a 4-4 red and green beast creature token with trample. Well, I have to say that I love the Planeswalkers in this set. I said this last week. I, I think Dovin's cool. I think Kaya's cool. I think Dovin is like a fine card. It's a neat build around. I think Kaya is mostly not going to see a lot of play, but is a really cool design and might answer a specific problem. And I think Domri, when built around, is going to be a powerful, but not completely format warping inclusion in a very specific red-green gruel deck. It's not even 100% clear to me that Domri is always going to be the best possible thing for gruel to be doing. But that being said, I think it's an important curveball to offer against certain decks. Giving your creatures riot, that haste ability is really impactful against decks which are seeking to interact with you at sorcery speed. And the card advantage is not something that a red-green deck typically has access to in this kind of wholesale form. This is a really big boost of card advantage for a red-green deck, again, if you've jumped through the deck building hoops. And the minus eight feels mostly game winning. So this card's good. It'll be built around, and it doesn't feel like it's on par with past Planeswalkers. This isn't a Gideon. This isn't even like Nissa, Voice of Zendikar. This is just something neat, a nice tool for Gruul to have. I look forward to building decks around it, not format warping, though. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the deck building restriction is definitely a thing because I don't know. I, I guess I was waiting to see some sort of grohl like flame tongue kavu-esque thing to go with the minus three instead we got uh thrash threat which is its own certain thing but doesn't really work that well with domri so it is mm-hmm. interesting there is going to be a lot of tension when you build these decks but i do think domri operating at full power level is pretty strong i think carson posted the math on this where it was like you need 26 creatures to hit 1.5 off domri on average 
Yeah, that would be my instinct is that you would rarely want to leave home with less just because Dombri isn't all that effective unless you're ma- you have to maximize these abilities or they look underwhelming in the face of past Planeswalker abilities and in the face of a four mana investment. So you're going to do the work to make this worthwhile. And when you do so, you'll be rewarded. You mentioned a Flame Tongue Kavu. Any interest in Ravager Worm? That's a card. I don't know if we have that on our list to talk about today. I don't think I've talked about it in the past either, but here's a fight ability on a creature. Obviously, it costs six as opposed to the so crucial four but domery helps with that a little bit ramping you into it and you get double riot as well so you get a a hasty five six if you so choose yeah so ravager worm is three rgg so six total mana for a uh worm four five with riot uh when this enters the battlefield choose up to one ravager worm fights target creature you don't control or destroy target land with an activated ability that isn't a mana ability and I do like Ravager Worm. I think it's a cool card. Uh, people are saying that this is kind of like a nod to best of one or whatever, but I don't really necessarily even think that because this seems also just like a reasonable sideboard card to me. And the thing about Ravager Worm that I don't like is that it competes with Carnage Tyrant at the six mana slot, and you sure. can't play too many sixes. But obviously, like Mana Dork into Domri into either one of those six drops is going to be incredible. Uh, I do think that... There is an Orzov card, Consecrate Consume, that has like an, an edict, your biggest creature thing that makes Carnage Tyrant potentially less good than it has been, which means that maybe Ravager Worm could slot in in a lot of these decks in place of Carnage Tyrant if that's a card that people are playing a lot of. Uh, mm-hmm. So Ravager Worm will see play, absolutely. And it's it, it is expensive for the flame tongue kavu type of thing that I'm trying to do, and like I guess crawl harpooner, uh, sort of covers you against some of that stuff. I mean, things like crackling drake and Nivmizit are probably a lot of the things that you are going to want to kill, like the things with evasion, not necessarily the ground stuff, because you'll probably have the ground locked up. That's a fair point. What, what do you think about the rarity on Ravager Worm? Mythic feels a little surprising to me. Although it's an odd card. I mean, the destroy target land with an activated ability that isn't a mana ability. That's a very strange effect to see on a card. So that pushes a little bit in favor of it being mythic. As far as power level, though, I think this is a little bit on the lower end for a mythic. You mentioned Carnage Tyrant. I mean, obviously vastly different cards, but in the face of something like Carnage Tyrant, this doesn't appear to be as powerful on its face. Yeah, and even Carnage Tyrant didn't necessarily feel like a mythic. That's true. That's true. So I, I don't know. I'm I'm fine with it. Between this and the Gruul like clan leader, I guess like the clan leader has kind of more of a mythic feeling thing, but all of the clan leader things are just rare anyway. So you need something else right. like mythic. I don't know. Right. I don't know. Whatever. I, I, I think that Ravager Worm being able to kill things like Lyra and Nimbisit and I guess trade with Crackling Drake probably, which is kind of embarrassing, but that alone makes it so it will see play at some point. Agree. So next card is Thrash Threat. This is the Gruul rare split card. Thrash is uh, HH, instant. Target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to target creature or planeswalker you don't control. So a nice little removal spell. And then the other side is Threat. 2RG sorcery create a 4-4 red and green beast creature token with tramples a four mana four four with trample not that bad uh as far as it being stapled onto a removal spell that's pretty nice i like that a lot 
Big upgrade for sure. Having that versatility out of your removal spell, you know, cashing in your thrash against a control deck to just get a 4-4 is invaluable, especially for a deck like Gruul, which is going to be very much just, here's my battlefield that needs to be good enough. Uh, having the ability to always add to that battlefield is quite impactful. I am very hesitant about removal spells like thrash. I always have been. I hate kind of leaving myself vulnerable to the blowout. Uh, I hate the fact that it's a, well, usually that type of removal spell is a miserable top deck. Obviously that's alleviated to some degree here with threat. So that's good. But but there is some vulnerability inherent in thrash, which I would rather avoid. However, the fact that we're now targeting planeswalkers is an interesting wrinkle to have. You can't just set up behind, you know, an army of one ones and expect that to hold off a non-trampling creature and let your planeswalker tick up forever. Something like Dovin obviously comes to mind, which can protect itself. Well, not if Thrash is in play. So we'll see if that's doing a lot to control the Teferis and other planeswalker threats of the world. I'm not sure how relevant the Planeswalker mode is going to be yet. It's one of those things where like establishing board presence is your way of controlling Planeswalkers and relying on a spell like this to bail you out can seem a little problematic to me, but I'll have to play with it a bit to see how often that mode comes up. Yeah, and Gruul is the one clan that you would think is just going to be good against Planeswalkers in general because they are so going to be trying to build... Yeah, this this big board presence, you have Domery, you have Rhythm of the Wild, a bunch of creatures that naturally have Riot. So I don't know. I, I think that it, it is nice. It's it's just like a value add, right? I mean, I wouldn't even necessarily be like, oh, like this is the reason why the card is good. But the fact that it has it, it's like, all right, you know, it's definitely a, a notch in its column, but I it, it wouldn't like move the needle for me. Yeah, mostly agree with that assessment. And look, there's a lot of versatility in this set. It's going to be one of the themes I think we harp on throughout this review, the ability of these cards to perform multiple roles, multiple functions. Uh, we know now authoritatively that that is not an accident. There are cards, you know, specifically considering best of one format that was confirmed via uh, Sam Stoddard's Twitter today. So there's going to be some of that going on, and I like it. It's a, it's a nice concession. And these cards are generally fun to play anyway. I like having more options in just the global game to say nothing of its effect on a best-of-one type format. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next card is Rhythm of the Wild. One RG enchantment. Creature spells you control can't be countered, and non-token creatures you control have Riot. So this might surprise you. Maybe not. I'm pretty low on this card, with the exception of doing broken things. I don't have any real interest in just playing this as a way to supercharge my threats. It's one of those things where use doing this instead of a threat is often problematic. You're better off just advancing your board presence in Gruel Colors. If there's a 12 counterspell deck, maybe this becomes more important, where you just can't conceivably fight through that kind of counterspell wall sure maybe rhythm of the wild is a sideboard option i'm more interested in abusing the riot ability with things like kitchen finks uh, murderous red cap i don't know if the redundancy matters all that much obviously we have tools to take advantage of those creatures already there is vizier and there's malira and, and and all these effects that already exist in the modern format having it not be vulnerable to creature removal could matter quite a bit 
It also enforces the idea of there's other play patterns available to those kind of decks. Like if you want to be aggressive, obviously Rhythm of the Wild can inspire that. And in that format, maybe you're more apt to face the hard control decks, things like Blue White, Jeskai. And you may want access to an effect like this to ensure your larger threats are resolving. So I want to explore it in that context. As far as just like this goes in all my Gruul decks, I don't really buy that. Yeah, I don't either, especially with Domri doing a lot of similar work and just being a better card uh, just in general. I mean, yeah. it, it is it is weird to have two different riot granting things. And Domri, for the most part, seems like the stronger one. But I do agree that Rhythm of the Wild does have its place, like potentially in standard in very specific cases. And I think it's mostly outmoded in modern, so I'm not very excited about that. But you know, maybe there's some red cards that I'm overlooking where before the other builds of, of those various creature combo decks like kind of brought you into Celestia and Abzan colors and maybe you get something from being red that I haven't considered, but uh, I don't you know. can do more with like Kiki Jiki type stuff if you need to go down that route. But Yeah, but just it being in, in enchantment, it's like, yeah, it's not vulnerable to removal or anything like that, but it also doesn't work with like Court of Calling, Collected Company. Right. Very Eldritch true. Evolution, all, all the cards that these decks are kind of built off of. So I'm I'm not very excited about that prospect for the card, but I do think it's a potential player in standard. Yeah, we'll have to see where exactly where it slots. I, I like exploring cards like this, even where they miss, just because they have the potential to throw a wrench into the modern works, and it's rare for a card to do that. And you kind of need to do something big and splashy to even have the possibility of affecting matter, modern in any significant way. So I like that these cards show up. Even if they miss, I'll have a fun few days poking around with it and seeing what I can get it to do. Yeah. Next card is uh, another Mythic Rare, Skargan Hellkite. 3RR, 4-4, Dragon, Riot, Flying, 3R, Skargan Hellkite, deals 2 damage, divided as you choose among 1 or 2 targets. Activate this ability only if this has a plus 1, plus 1 counter on it. So I wrote my article today on this card. And my opinion of it is that people are not paying enough attention to Skargan Hellkite. It seems to have very much flown under the radar in spoiler season. And I get that because it's not the most exciting card on its face. It's another big dragon. We've seen cards like this before. But there's a lot of good synergies present in standard. And this body is big. 4-4 hasters end the game very quickly in the air. But I really like Skargan Hellkite's ability to play defense as well, which is something that these dragons are often lacking. If you're building more mid-range strategies, I mean, we don't know exactly what Rakdos is going to look like, but I, I see conceivable mid-range builds. Having a creature which can play both ways in traditional mid-range fashion is really impactful. And obviously the analog everyone goes to is Glorybringer, and I can understand why. And for all of Glorybringer's power and immediate impact, it really only played well going one way. It either had to have momentum or be seeking to generate momentum. It wanted to snowball the game very quickly. It wasn't really comfortable taking a defensive stance because it just didn't do anything. It had to be attacking to activating to activate its modes. Whereas Skargan Hellkite, first of all, is going to be a far, far better top deck in the ultra late game. You know, top decking Hellkite when you're on nine mana already is going to give you immediate impact and get you to a second turn, which is going to be absolutely devastating for your opponent. But I, I just think the flexibility built into Skargan Hellkite means it deserves more respect than it's currently getting, which seems like no respect. I haven't heard anyone really talk about this card thus far. 
Yeah, uh, Skark and Hellkite is definitely good. It has definitely been in a lot of my deck lists. I think a lot of people just look at the the 3R activation cost, myself included, and it's just like, oh, that's so steep. Like, our game's actually going to come down to this. So they're mostly looking at it as a 5-mana 5-5 or a 5-mana 4-4 haste, which when I played PT Guilds of Ravnica, I wanted, like, a big flying threat for Red Mirror matches, for example. Mm -hmm. But... Anything that dies to Lava Coil is probably not a good choice, but then you start looking at like 5-mana five 5-5, five, five, and it's it's a lot better, but I don't know. I, I did forget that Demanding Dragon existed too, so that's that's like another card that could potentially be kind of making a comeback with like these Grohl cards and everything and like all the ways to give it haste and everything, but... I am very interested in Skargan Hellkite when you get to double riot off of Domri or Rhythm because right. five five mana five five haste is incredible. And the fact that you don't lose out to stuff like Lava Coil is pretty huge, but it is kind of a feel bad to just be like five mana five five go, you know? Well, it's it's funny that that's the point we've gotten to in Magic, right? Where like five mana five five flying and you're super disappointed about it. I understand what you're saying. There's there's vulnerability there. There's vulnerability to things like Ravenous Chupacabra that scare you a little bit. And I, I think rightfully so, but you can mitigate that. There's ways to build around those cards. And I think your point with multiple ways to give Skargan Hellkite Riot already existing in the format is telling. The 5 5 Haster is going to happen quite often. It's going to be very impactful. I often talk of, I, when I wrote my article, I talked about this card in the context of Status Statue, which I don't know if you fall on the believer of Status Statue spectrum or, or you're anti it, but if you're building redundancy into things like Goblin Chain Warrior plus Status Statue. Skargan Hellkite seems like a very fine place to go for those kind of mono red setups splashing uh, green black for Status Statue. It's a very easy splash to do. Your mana is absolutely fine. And if you get to untap with access to status, you know, it's pretty clear that your Hellkite's safe. Your opponent's generally going to kill it at sorcery speed if they have the option to. So statusing up your Hellkite, picking off their two biggest creatures, that's going to decide a lot of games. So I, I really like the card in that context. And Sarkin's still there too. You know, we've kind of slept on that card. It seems like one that's going to have its day eventually. Maybe Hellkite is the card it uses to do so. Yeah, uh, I, I'm fine with the status stuff. It it depends on what decks people are playing, right? Like For if sure. the metagame is a bunch of creature decks, then obviously assembling Chain Whirler plus status is huge. But if it's like a bunch of Drake decks and other decks that don't necessarily care about that sort of combo, then, you know, what are you really doing with your life? But uh, I do think that Skargan Hellkite for sure is an upgrade over like Raging Swordtooth and the things that people were trying before. Right. I agree. All right. Well, we are going to move over into the Azorius Guild, which I guess is kind of light this time around. We got to talk about most of the impactful cards already. And one that I want to talk about is Warrant Warden. And this is the Azorius Rare Split card. Warrant is HH instant put target attacking or blocking creature on top of its owner's library. The other side, Warden is 3W sorcery create basically a Sarah Angel, a 4-4 white and blue Sphinx creature token with flying and vigilance. Well, first, I'm surprised it's not a green black token. Second. Ooh, good one. <laughs> I'm into this card. I mean, I, we talked, it feels very similar. I'm going to say a lot of the same things I did when it came to Thrash Threat. Versatility is nice. This form of removal 
it's good. It's, it's good to have access to these type of things, especially in a world where we're talking about Arclight Phoenix and, and other such sticky threats. So I don't think we're ever going to be disappointed to have access to Warrant. I don't know that it's automatic four of in all of our blue-white decks, but a nice modal option to have access to. We'll see some degree of play for sure. I think this card is insane. Insane. Wow, that's that's quite a step up from some small amount of play. Tell us why. I think this card is absolutely incredible. Think about decks that you probably had to slot in seal away where you didn't necessarily want to. So like any sort of creature deck or something that's like tempo-y oriented. And granted, this is me going down a pretty deep rabbit hole with some of the the tempo cards in in this set. So that's kind of where a lot of this context is coming from. But even in just like blue-white control, it's like you play these mirror matches where seal away is just completely garbage and warrant is, or warden at least, is like actually reasonable. But just this this is such an upgrade over seal away for a, a lot of different decks. And I think it's going to be huge. And like this, this is just another one of those things where it's like, oh, you can play some interaction for things like Crackling Drake while also having just a completely reasonable card on the back end. So you want to build a deck with like Dovin, Hero of Precinct 1, like this This is it. This is the card. Yeah, I think if there's a flaw in how I've been evaluating Azorius cards, it's that I still look at them as, okay, what is this doing in the Teferi deck? And right. ba- based on what we're seeing here, that's not what Azorius is about. Azorius is some kind of tempo deck. There's a lot of small, meaningful creatures. And go back to Dovin, which we talked about, you know, you're looking to generally establish a curve with Dovin. You're not playing a pure control strategy. A a lot of my lens for Azorius defaults to that spot. Like, what is this doing in the pure control deck? Because that's what I've come to think of Azorius as. But your, your point is fair. In instances where you just had to play Seal Away for that early interaction, this is doing a lot more for you. Uh, with a big body in the late game, potentially. So yeah, that, that's a good selling point. Yeah, so now you have uh, Deputy of Detention and Warrant, which are removal spells that are basically good against everyone. Like, not incredible. Like, obviously, Sarah Angel isn't going to be impressing anyone, really, but it just means that your card is never dead. And it being a five-mana card means that you don't necessarily have to play a bunch of high-end stuff, even though you'd probably play like some amount of Teferis, right? But warden just kind of like fills the curve incidentally which is nice so you end up with kind of like this mana sinky feeling removal spell and i think just putting a thing on top of their library is huge it's it's like a a huge tempo creator even just outside of like removing the thing from the battlefield where it's like if they're stuck on lands or even if they're flooded, if, if they just don't have enough resources, like them skipping their draw step to draw another, you know, land war elf or whatever is awesome. It's a meaningful form of removal to be sure. I guess I would also point out the fact that this is mono blue removal if you need it to be, yeah. which is often a pressure point for blue-based decks, you know, if you're trying to do something Simic, if you're trying to do something just mono-blue, think about struggles dealing with Adanto Vanguard as a base blue deck over the past year. Uh, you can right. understand why Warrant is in, important in that slot as well. Yeah, I've I've been looking at this in the various Drake decks too as like a one or two of. Yeah, it makes and sense. And then maybe you, pl- maybe you play like some Sacred Foundries or Clifftop Retreats so that it's easier to cast. Yep. Yeah, I can buy that. And then you get access to Warden as well, which is going to be a meaningful card in those decks quite often so right 
Yeah, so you, you just run your control opponents out of removal, hopefully, by just playing a bunch of X4 flyers. But yeah, I, I think this card is awesome and it's going to show up in a lot of places and people are sleeping on it. Yeah, I, I think you did a good job selling me. I would I would upgrade my initial opinion of it. I thought it was fine. It might be better than fine. It might see play in more spots than I thought. This card will likely make my top 10 list. I could buy that. I'm, there's so many good cards in this set. I started. I know. I, I started know. parsing my top ten list today. Not actually sitting down and doing it, but starting to think, okay, what cards are going to make it? And man, is it going to be so so tough? Yeah, I did that too. I had like 24 cards or yeah. something. Yeah, this is a hard set. All right. Uh, next Azorius card is Precognitive Perception, and I'm definitely going to butcher that a lot in the future. This is. 3UU, instant, draw three cards, addendum, if you cast this card during your main phase, instead scry three, then draw three cards. This card's fine. Uh, Jace's Ingenuity was a very, very good magic card. It's all play. Uh, This has an upgraded mode. I worked a lot this past week on, I don't even want to call them Turbo Fog-ish decks because they they have no fogs anymore. Basically like combo Nexus (laughs) of Fate decks with Wilderness Reclamation. This card was a huge part of it. The more I goldfish it, fish these decks, the more important I realized this card was. Getting three cards deep in your main phase when you're untapping in your end step anyway, and just looking basically for Nexus of Fate. Uh, your library is now like 26 cards. You need to find a Nexus of Fate, and you get to go six cards deep, and you have four in your deck. Your odds are very, very good. So if nothing else, this card proved itself uh, an incredible inclusion in that style of deck. But I think there's probably more fair uses for it as well. You know, turns where you're looking for something specific, this will do a nice job of it. Turns where you just need to maximize your mana after holding it up on your opponent's turn, it's doing that as well. Five's a little awkward. Usually you want this spell in the four slot, but even in pure control decks, I could see this being a one-of to supplement any existing card draw. Right. I, I do think it's kind of weird where... You have this, but you also have Teferi and Ral, and both of those cards have seen a lot of play, and it's very clear that you can afford to tap out for those cards, or at least like create a board state where you can tap out for those cards and not be punished too heavily. So it is weird to look at this and be like, oh yeah, like I'm going to play one of this and three Teferis in my deck or whatever, but getting the boost of cards right then is kind of huge. Uh, I think that... This is the sort of card that could just slot in in the Crackling Drake decks instead of like the sideboard rails potentially. Yeah. And you're talking about building like combo-ish Nexus of Fate decks. Like it makes more sense to, again, have the boost of raw cards there. And control decks don't necessarily want all of their stuff to be sorcery speed. Like there are going to be turns where you want to hold up Settled Wreckage or a Counterspell. And then you want some way to punish your opponent when they don't play into those cards. And I think that this is one of those cards that is just going to be like, oh, I forgot about that. Like, I didn't think that they'd be able to use their mana effectively on this turn if I didn't attack with all my creatures. And it's it's going to show up a little bit, but not in huge numbers. Mostly agree, unless it's doing, unless it's enabling something broken, then it can show up in large numbers. But otherwise, I would right. expect small, small amounts. Yep, and uh, that that's basically it for Azorius. I mean, we've... We've gotten some good cards, but it does feel kind of weak, and I do feel like Teferi has to take some of the blame for that. That is my assessment as well. If Azorius was super powered in this set, we'd be really scared right now, right? Like the, The presence of Teferi kind of looms like a specter over this format. I don't see a lot that's really pushing Teferi to the next level. I see a lot of interesting strategies for Azorius, to be sure, but they're not really built around the Drago 
style of play that Teferi can sometimes enable. And uh, that's a little comforting to see, I think. Yeah, I'm fine with that. If my opponent plays a turn one hollowed fountain and I don't immediately know what deck they're on, that's a win. Agreed. So moving over to Orzov, we have Kaya's Wrath. And this is uh, four total mana, dub dub BB sorcery. As you might expect, it is destroy all creatures. And then you gain life equal to the number of creatures you controlled that were destroyed this way. I appreciate this being just titled a wrath. So when I call it a wrath, it doesn't make no sense to new players of the game. Uh, that's a very right. nice, <laughs> nice token for us. Wrath of God has been gone for so long. Forever. Yeah. And we still call these things wraths. And that probably makes no sense to so many people. So now it makes sense again. If nothing else, that's the, the greatest boon of Kaya's wrath. So here's probably the best card for Teferi in the set, right? Like four drop, just hard sweeper turn five to fairy that's pretty good setup as far as what this is doing for your orzov decks i don't know yet i i need to know all the pieces available to an orzov deck because there's no baseline to really compare it to everything that really props up an orzov deck is going to be held in this set for the most part and it's going to cobble together its pieces elsewhere uh, if it's going to have a really strong thematic core but something like esper control a tap out ish control deck leaning hard on Kaya's Wrath into Teferi makes a lot of sense to me. That would be where I start week one with something like Kaya's Wrath. As far as just a four mana Wrath being available in the format again, I like it. I think there's enough hoops to jump through here that it it makes sense for these decks to have access to these cards. It'll be interesting to see how much decks seek to leverage the life gain attached to Kaya's Wrath. Remove some of that feel bad that you usually get for playing a more mid-range strategy based where you, you you may play creatures on the first two or three turns and then get really punished by your own wrath. Kaya's wrath is to some degree mitigating that not as hard as possible, but I don't know. I don't know if that'll be a use for Kaya's wrath or if it's just going to slot in purely creatureless Esperish control decks. I mean, it's definitely going to be a sideboard card, right? Like there are things like Orzov Knights and these aristocrat decks, and there's a bunch of white weenie decks that, that could potentially splash black, for a lot of the small creatures, we're seeing a lot of the afterlife creatures. And you think about this as a sideboard card against something like Grawl or Mono Red, and you get to commit to the board, but like not enough to completely overpower them. You're just like baiting them to play out more things. Right. And then you get to wipe the board with the Wrath, gain like three life, kind of put you out of burn range. I mean, I, I think that's incredibly strong. It could be. And then don't forget all the afterlife creatures in the set as well. So you're also wrathing right. yourself and then setting up, you know, somewhat of a board to follow up with, which I think is a nice little interaction. It's kind of that, that's why I like my Orzov decks to look like this nickel and dime, small edges, squeaking out a little value here and there. That feels very Orzovian to me. Uh, so this fits the theme well. As far as raw power, it's a format of wrath. I mean, that has mattered. Basically, every time it's ever been printed and constructed, I I like that it's being restricted to a very specific deck, a very specific mana requirements, but it's good that it's back. It's good to have a four mana wrath in the format again. Yep, absolutely agree. Next card is Consecrate Consume, the uncommon Orzov split card. Consecrate is 1H instant exile target card from a graveyard draw card, and Consume is 2WB sorcery. Target player sacrifices a creature with the greatest power among creatures they control. You gain life equal to its power. So Consecrate is 
basically the graveyard hate type of thing that we've wanted for a very long time. It's like very low opportunity cost to actually slot this into your deck. And then, you know, things like Arclight Phoenix, just like, yeah, whatever, get out. And then Consume is the best answer to Carnage Tyrant that I have seen. Yeah, incredible answer to Carnage Tyrant. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it against something like Crackling Drake as well, where you enjoy both halves of this card, the ability to remove Arclight Phoenixes and then just gain nine with a, a huge uh, Consume on their Crackling Drake. This card is going to see a good amount of play, and it answers a lot of large problems that decks like this would otherwise face. Any kind of mid-range Orzhov deck would have a very difficult time answering those kind of sticky threats. Not anymore. Consume is here to save the day. Yeah, and I do like the fact that the decks with Riot are going to be the things that you're primarily going to want this against, and Riot actually makes it so they have a little bit of counterplay against it where... You know, they just have a bunch of hasty threats and you're sitting on this expensive sorcery speed removal spell. So there is like still a lot of tension there. It is not just like, oh, this completely invalidates what your big grawl creature deck is trying to do. Like there, there is actually some stuff that you have to work for, which is nice. Yeah. I mean, you do get your payback, right? You get to gain back whatever you lost to that hasty attack with consume, which is also, I mean, I think that speaks to that cool kind of balance, this yin and yang of the the coin and you know, a, a good answer versus a good threat. And it won't save you in that one turn window, right? Where you're super vulnerable and the haste threat comes down and kills you. But if you get the chance to untap, then you can recoup some of what you've lost and nice back and forth interaction. Yeah, I like it. So I don't, I don't know how much this is going to see play. This, this might be one of those cards that just slots in and out depending on what decks exist. Like if there are a lot of Arclight Phoenixes, then obviously this card gains a lot. If there are a lot of Carnage Tyrants, this card also gains. And then if people aren't really doing those things, then this card's kind of mopey. And you're going to be at a point where you can like cut it or relegate it to the sideboard or something. And I think that that is pretty interesting because it's just going to create like this automatic churn throughout the standard format. Yep, exactly. That was my thought as well. Next card is Seraph of the Scales, little angel mythic rare, 2-dub-B, 4-3, flying, afterlife 2, and you can pay dub to give this vigilance until end of turn, and pay B to give this death touch until end of turn. I have no idea what to make of this card. I, a part of me thinks I'm just way off base because it seems a little underwhelming to me. Like This is a nice package of abilities. It's not that I think Seraph of the Scales is a bad card. It, it's... It's very impactful, for sure. I just don't know that it does enough to buy its mythic status, which always indicates to me I'm fundamentally misunderstanding the card, and I need to play some games with it, and then I'll see just how impactful it can be. Uh, Vigilance on a three-toughness body isn't the biggest deal. Like Usually, Vigilance matters a lot more when you start getting to four-toughness and you're making some meaningful blocks. This buys a bunch of time against something like Drake's. It trades very well with the first Drake, makes a couple blockers for the next Drake's. So that's cool to see. It really trades with anything in the format once you can give it Death Touch. So yeah, this seems like a good solid card. I'm just not blown away by it, I guess. Yeah, I agree. I think once you have this card in play, it might change. You might just be like, oh, like this this thing is is morphling or whatever, basically. But I can buy that, yeah. Un- until then, it's like, yeah, only three toughness. Lava Coil gets rid of the afterlife stuff. There's there's no, like, life gain. I find it hard to believe that this is actually going to, like, stabilize you against people. But 
I don't know. I, it's possible that just like they play in Enigma Drake, you play this, you trade, you get two spirits like that. That is a huge swing potentially. And there was a Boros Angels deck that could potentially either be Mardu or Orzov now. And this fits kind of in that hole in the mana curve between Resplendent Angel and Lyra. So it does kind of make sense. I, I think that people are going to play with this card. They're going to build around it. I don't know if it's actually going to have the impact that they hope it has. Um, but maybe it's like just good enough to see play and the angel creature type matters enough. Not sure. I, I, I just think I have to reserve judgment on this card. I, I think it needs to be the type of card I cast and then I can come back and say, oh yeah, this is actually board dominating or it's as mopey as I thought. But the vulnerability to Lava Coil, I, I don't think you can write that off. I think that is the core removal spell of the format and trading your four drop for a Lava Coil is never, ever going to feel good. No, it's not. But also, all of your things have to be lava coiled at this point. You know, that's kind of what it looks like. Hmm. Yeah, everything's got afterlife. That's that's true. That's the kind of setup you're getting to. Again, uh, it speaks to the fact that I want to know all of Orzov's cards. I want to know how this is all coming together. And it feels like a little bit is still missing, even as we get close to probably seeing most of the meaningful cards now. We're certainly pretty close to through the mythics and the rares. But there's probably like some support card, which is going to very clearly indicate to me, oh, now I get the stack. I understand what Orzov is setting up. And it's still a little murky to me. Well, Afterlife 2 is really strong, and it's possible that we're not supposed to be looking at it like, oh, this is like a good mid-range threat. Maybe this is supposed to be the top end in the Aristocrats deck. It could be. I mean, most of my assumptions about the Aristocrats deck are that it's very combo-y, just kind of kills you out of nowhere. But that's probably my own presuppositions about what the deck should look like more than what it may actually look like. It may be very much more mid-rangey and accruing value. And certainly three triggers for your Judith are a big deal contained in one body here. And if we were using sack outlets, that's the kind of fireball-ish type action that something like the Aristocrats is going to look for. Right. Next Orzov card is kind of a weird one. This is Ethereal Absolution. 4-dub-B enchantment. Creatures you control get plus one, plus one. Creatures your opponents control get minus one, minus one. And you can pay 2-dub-B exile target card from an opponent's graveyard. If it was a creature card, you create a 1-1 white and black spirit creature token with flying. So if you're new to the game, you haven't been playing Magic that long. I want to just tell you right now that creatures your opponents control getting minus one, minus one is so much more impactful than you are anticipating right now. It matters so, so much. This effect has existed before. Uh, Curse of Death's Hold was one version of it. And what's what's the other older one? Night of Souls Betrayal. Night of Souls Betrayal. Thank you. That affected all creatures, not just your opponent's creatures. But it's always super impactful. The two other times we saw it, it was cheaper than this. It was four mana on Night of Souls Betrayal, five mana on the curse. So we're paying a bit more here, but we're getting a very, very relevant piece of text stapled on in the exile ability, creating a never-ending stream of spirits. And also those spirits are even bigger. They're now two twos because all of your creatures are getting bigger. So in this whole mid-rangey idea, Ethereal Absolution might be very meaningful. A lot of this boils down to shape of the format. Curse of Death Hold was super impactful in a world where Delver was a big threat and therefore Delvers could no longer enter the battlefield and survive when Curse of Death Hold was in play. So it's a lot about what else is going around 
these cards. But if we're talking about afterlife being a thing and aristocrats being a thing, certainly the minus one, minus one effect is going to be relevant there. Uh, so we'll have to see where this one goes. But this card is probably more powerful than people are anticipating. Yeah, I do think that it is going to be a product of the format because I, you know, obviously that card is not good against every single person, but either that is a completely busted sideboard card or on some weeks it's just going to be like, all right, this is what I'm building my deck around and you're just going to crush everyone. Yeah. Also, you can never beat this card in a game of limited. Just pack it up as soon as it hits the Right. Table. Yeah, that that is certainly true. <laughs> Last Orzov card is the rare split card. This is Revival Revenge. And Revival is HH Sorcery, return target creature card with converted mana cost, three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. So two mana on Earth, not bad. And the other side is Revenge, 4-dub-B Sorcery, double your life total, target opponent loses half their life rounded up. So these split cards were uh, confirmed to be made with best of one in mind so that you had a card that was not dead against any archetype and... This is one of the weirder ones where it's like both of these are kind of good against beatdown and kind of good against control, but definitely sort of on the weaker end. Yeah, I didn't know quite what to make of this card, which is one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about it. I'll note the reason why it piques my interest and why I think it might be more powerful than people first expect. You're getting a discount on the revival side of things. You're able to return a three mana creature for two mana. That can be very, very impactful. I also, anytime something can loop with Eternal Witness, it catches my eye. I mean, maybe that's just like kind of silly at this point, given what modern's about. But when you can just it, never ending chain Eternal Witnesses, I'm into it. I look at it. I see what I can do with it. Something like we're seeing scattered play of mono white martyr right now. I don't know if this matters enough there, but having an extra martyr can be very impactful. Having the big side of revenge and gaining whatever 30 life, even if it's six mana, that's a a bargain uh, in a deck like that. And it'll be able to use the front side as well, returning whatever relevant creature it needs in the moment. So could make some inroads into modern, but I don't know what we're doing with this in standard yet. I just think it's powerful enough to matter and should probably be something we're keeping track of. Yeah, I don't I don't know where it fits. I don't know right. what we're exactly doing with this. I do think that if your aristocrats sort style of deck has things like Stitcher's Supplier and you get to revival a Judith or you just have more Judiths in general, I think that is a a pretty sweet thing. I'm not right. sure if you actually need that or not, but it is an option. Yeah, I like you said I, I don't know. I don't know if doubling your life total ever matters there. It doesn't strike me as exactly what they're trying to do. But the word double is a meaningful word in magic. And anytime you get to double anything, there's potential for abuse. I don't know how we're doing that, but I want to keep track of it and see what I can come up with. I like target opponent loses half their life more than the double your life total thing. Okay. Yeah. I I think both are important for sure. They, they can change games. It it feels like a very swingy spell uh, that can certainly be a part of the format if the right pieces are around it. Like, oh, I played a bunch of revitalizes and absorbs and stuff. I'm at 25. I don't need to worry about stuff. And then you just get revenged and you you lose. I don't yeah, know. that's a wrap. That could happen. All right, on to Simic. Uh, we have Growth Chamber Guardian, 1G, 2-2, Elf Crab Warrior, 2G Adapt 2. 
If this creature has no plus one plus one counters on it, put two plus one plus one counters on it. And whenever one or more plus one plus one counters are put on this, you may search your library for a card named Grove Chamber Guardian, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. I was originally pretty low on this card, and now I think it's one of the best cards in the set. Yeah, I think this card is incredible. (laughs) There's so much this card can do. It generates so much value. It gets fairly big for fairly little investment. It allows you to keep your mana open, which is something that Simic seems interested in. Uh, I buy this card. This seems very good to me. Like two mana, two, two didn't really excite me, but I don't know, just being able to adapt at instant speed, like you noted, uh, it means that people can't really block this early. Like you get to get a bunch of free attacks in with it, spend your mana on other stuff, and then you can play this alongside counter spells or other instant speed interaction stuff. For a deck like Golgari, this is just an incredible mana sink. Andrew Ellen Bogan wrote an article on Star City t- today that was about this basically in Golgari and how it's better than Branch Walker and you miss out on wild growth Walker, but like this thing creates a lot of power and you just never run out of stuff to do. And you're also getting extra resources in your hand. Uh, if you get to leverage that in some way. So yeah, this, this card is sick. Yeah, totally. If you can skip wild growth Walker, I totally buy this as the better inclusion in Golgari. I also think you can just build archetypes around this card. I think it's that good. Simic is Weird, again, to no one's surprise, we don't know exactly the style of game plan they want to be doing, but like this card might be a meaningful splash in other archetypes. It's it's that good. I think you can build strategies around Growth Chamber Guardian. Yeah, absolutely. Clawgo is yeah, what, love it. <laughs> what, what the internet is saying. Perfect. Uh, next card is Incubation Druid, 1G02 Elf Druid. Tap, add one mana of any color that a land you control could produce. If Incubation Druid has a plus one, plus one counter on it, instead add three mana of that type instead. And three GG, adapt three. Dude, three is so much. Three is such a large number. It's a lot. Yeah. This card's scary. Another one that I think has the potential to be super powerful. You have to work for it. But even when you're working for it, it's not like we haven't played two drop accelerators before. We played Druid of the Cowl and we were basically fine with it. This has so much upside versus something like Druid of the Cowl. It's not even funny. Obviously, it's got a weaker point in being vulnerable to two damage based removal. I won't ignore that. It's real. It's relevant. But the upside is so much better. And things like Hadana's Climb enabling this card, essentially making your Hadana's Climb free for the turn. That's bonkers. There's a lot of good setups with this card. I've even seen talk of like uh, Lanawar Reborn, the Graftland from uh, Future Sight, and using this card in modern context, which sounds silly, but if you t- talk about untapping with six mana on turn three, well, that's really meaningful. Like that's the premise of Amulet Titan. And Incubation Druid is a little less consistent, but there's something there. There's there's raw power that demands exploration with Incubation Druid. There's pl- enough ways to get payoffs here uh, and get counters on Incubation Druid before it's supposed to have counters, you know, before it adapts on turn five. So I like this card a lot. I'm still working out homes for it. It's very new. We only got it in the last few hours, actually. So I, I'm not going to pretend to have explored everything, but it's an exciting print for sure. Yeah, I I was already putting Druid of the Cowl in a lot of my decks, and this, this like you said, is just an incredible upgrade. Uh, both Incubation Druid and Growth Chamber Guardian are elves, 
So I'm looking at that tribe potentially as a thing that you could be doing. Mm-hmm. And Incubation Druid tapping for three mana obviously works well with Growth Chamber Guardian, which kind of just puts that on easy mode. Uh, so you get to put a lot of four force onto the battlefield. And what is the easiest way to put a plus one plus one counters on something? Like obviously Mentor is a thing. You have Gird for battle. Is that it? Yeah, Gerd, Gerd is probably the easiest one right now. But Mentor is a nice look here too. I mean, obviously everything Mentor is onto Incubation Druid. So if your creature has Mentor, that's a very easy setup for you. Yeah, so th- this card is sick. I, I don't know that it's going to be like busted. Oh man, we're going to have eight mana on turn three every game or whatever. But uh, I do think that it is very strong. I'm with you. What's the one drop red creature that has Mentor? Goblin Banneret. Yeah, there you go. There's a nice little setup for you. Yeah, but then you have to attack with the Druid on turn three. You can't lose it in combat, and then you untap on turn four. That's like a little slower than just playing Gerd. Just Gerding or something, yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It is. And then, look, I think the cleanest one is going to be Hadana's Climb. I think that card is poised to just do silly, silly things in this format. It can juice up your growth chamber guardians later on if you don't want to pay for them and yeah. you can just get it for free that way. It's going to flip so, so reliably. It makes mana of any color. So now your incubation druids tap for three of whatever you want. Not that you're super concerned about that, but a little bit more upside for you. There's going to be a lot of Hadana's climb in the new format, I think. Yeah, I would not be shocked. Next Simic card is Frilled Mystic, GGUU32, Elf, Lizard, Wizard, Flash. When this enters the battlefield, you may counter target spell. Mystic Snake is back, baby. One of my favorite cards of all time. My article is completely about this card uh, that goes up Friday on Star City. So you're a believer. You think this card is good enough to see play in standard? I am completely enamored with this card. I think it is awesome. I think that you like the key kind of for these sort of things is passing with four mana, basically having it be face up. It doesn't matter. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. you pass with four mana with Simic colors and your opponent is going to kind of know what's going on. And then they're going to try and do their best to play around it. But like week one decks aren't going to be built with like the subtlety and nuance to be able to exploit this type of thing. So a lot of the time they're just going to have to run their spell into it or pass the turn. And then if you have any way to punish them for passing the turn, it's just game over. Like you get such a huge tempo advantage. It spirals out of control. And one of the best ways to actually put them in this horrible, horrible spot is with growth chamber guardian. Right. That's what I was going to say is basically every Simic creature has a mana sink stapled onto it that you get to take advantage of. So you hold open that four. If they do nothing, okay, here come all of my growth chamber guardians. I hope you're ready for that line of play. Uh, If they do something, okay, I'll take a free three, two, no problem. So incredible versatility. I am interested to see if there's anything we can do with blinking this card. That was one of my favorite interactions with mystic snake. I love repulsing my mystic snakes and just buying them back. So anything like that comes into play. You have me completely sold, but counter spell stapled onto a body, almost always impactful, very long history of all these cards being constructed worthy. You can call back to something like Venser, mystic snake itself. I'm excited about a card like this and the possibilities it offers. Yeah. You can also do the spell queller thing where it's just, you run out your three, two and start attacking yeah. them, you know, start attacking but beat down. This is an elf. This is a wizard. Uh, there are things like unclaimed territory, which can help fix for both tribes. Uh, I think this could potentially fit into a lot of different decks. And I think that that sort of tempo archetype is a thing that is 
missing from standard and has a bunch of cards that can support it. So I am very excited and have gone very, very deep on this card. I can't wait to see what you have. This this tempo style of play is one of my favorite styles of play throughout the history of Magic. Uh, if it's viable, I will be a very happy camper. Ooh, we might be able to work on the same deck for once. Yeah, it, it has to happen eventually, right? We've only been doing this for like a year and a half now. Eventually our paths will cross. <laughs> uh, next card, uh, last submit card is Salamander Drake, which, yep, you guessed it, is creature type Salamander Drake. This is hmm. you for a 1-1 flying, and you can pay 7U to adapt 4, but this ability costs 1 less for each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard. So 7 instants for sorceries, and you, you can just make 5-5 five, five flyer for UU. Are you freaking kidding me? I mean, this card's unbelievable. This card is sick. Why is this an uncommon over the looting merfolk? I have no idea. This card seems so, so good to me that I've read it like 10 times and I'm like, I'm missing something. I, I don't understand something about this card. Look, I come from a time of flying men and that being a mean, meaningful card. So the downside on this, it's like, it's better than an unflipped Delver, right? I mean, this card might be better than Delver. I'm going to say that right now. In Eternal Formats, Modern Legacy, this card might just be better than Delver. And modern, yes. Legacy, absolutely not. Okay, look, it's it's close if it it's not. It is good, it is good. And yeah. I'm looking forward to playing it with Delver and giving Blue this kind of redundant access to these incredible flying threats. This card's probably good enough for standard too. You have to work a little bit harder, but if you've played any amount of Visit Drakes, you know you can have that kind of setup with a hugely stocked graveyard. And it's not so bad to just have this 1-1 sitting on the battlefield, which at some point you're going to cash in to this massive threat. And look, it doesn't have to be the best case scenario. You could spend turn two doing discovery, turn three just casting a chart, chart of course, and then turn four rolls around and you're evolving this for, or excuse me, adapting this for three mana. That's not so bad. That's a fine play in the absence of something else. You know, maybe you have dive down open at that point and you just really want right. a three mana threat that you can protect. That's a completely fine play pattern. I'm most excited about this card in eternal formats where I think it's just freaking bonkers, but it is also good in standard. The most exciting adapt card we've seen thus far. Although I will say growth chamber guardian is a close second, a very impactful card, but this is just like reaching back into eternity. One of the most meaningful legacy prints in a long time. Yeah, this card is very exciting. I, I am more so excited about it in standard because I do think it slots well into Drake's or Arclight Phoenix, however you want to build that deck. It's a cheap enabler for Charter Course, which is awesome because now Charter Course just has like an extra mode on it where you can just draw two cards if you want. It is a cheap threat that you can, you, you don't have to do anything early. It just becomes like this Drake with haste at some point. And the fact that it is super cheap means that it works really well with counter spells, including dive down. Like this card is awesome. And I don't know, man, I, I think that even outside of like Drake's and stuff, this, this card is going to be completely fine. Like this card in mono blue, maybe you cut the Orkite Marauders or whatever crappy two drop people are currently playing. And it's like, you can play potentially more charts and dive downs and, right. and stuff like that. And like, this is actually just like a reasonable threat. I mean, you're, you're probably not going to adapt it for one mana, but the deck is already playing flying men and it's good with curious obsession. It's good with dive down. So that deck gets more consistent and you just have this way to turn it into a tempest Drake at some point. Totally agree. I, I think it could actually revitalize the mono blue archetype, you know, setting up siren storm tamer to protect. This is pretty trivial 
five five flying is almost certainly going to be good enough. It's taking out some of that problem of did I curious obsession or not? Do I have tempest Drake or tempest gin or not? This is another very powerful proactive thing for those decks to be doing. It requires a retool. I do think you need to definitely get some more instants and sorceries into the deck, but you can do so and still have the deck be very very good and get rid of some of the kind of garbage they've been playing up until this point and have really really good cards in that deck finally. Yep. And I'm I'm pretty excited about that. Like I said, you know, tempo is is going to be a thing. That is going to be an actual archetype that exists in a bunch of different ways. Love it. Moving over to Rakdos, this is this is the guild that I'm most excited about, not necessarily because I think that it's going to be the best, but it has the coolest cards, I think. Hmm, interesting take. <laughs> that 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 is a nice way of saying that you think that I'm wrong. You like uh, I mean, okay. I think the Simic cards are incredible. <laughs> Look, this is a, so far one of the most exciting sets I've seen. I feel like a broken record. We said that last time, but if you've been with us a while, you know I don't always say that. The Rakdos cards are very cool. There's a lot I'm excited about, but Simic has me over the moon right now. Okay, so coolest card, I think, is Theater of Horrors. This is 1BR Enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, exile the top card of your library. During your turn, if an opponent lost life this turn and damage causes loss of life, you may play cards exiled with Theater of Horrors, and you can pay 3R to have this deal one damage to target opponent or Planeswalker. Love this card. Love it. I think awesome. It's, I think it's very good. It's creeping into a bunch of my decks. I rebuilt kind of Big Red in my article this week. One of the ways I rebuilt it was with a little bit of black in it, in part for Rick's Mahdi Reveler, but really for Theater of Horrors. I think in post-board games, this is a world beater out of a deck like Big Red. It does everything a deck like that wants. Again, another card I don't think people are excited enough about. Those cards just sit there. They're not going anywhere. You don't have to do damage every turn. You can just build up, you know, three or four nice cards under a theater of horrors, get your damage in for that turn, play a land, play a three, whatever you want to do, you can accomplish with theater of horrors. And if you have ever played with Phyrexian Arena, you know what giving decks like this access to persistent card advantage does. Uh, And the fact that you're getting to trigger it, get its benefit, based on an ability stapled onto Theater of Horrors, man, that's just everything you're looking for. And that reach is important too. Decks that are looking to go long, a lot of times mid-range can stall out on that last two or three points of damage against the control deck. Well, no more. Your source of card advantage is going to provide you those last three points of damage as well. So I love Theater of Horrors. I think this is a huge thing for making both red mid-range and Rakdos mid-range into real players in the format. Even just the straight Rakdos burn deck. Sure. Yeah, a lot of pieces for that deck coming together. A lot of burn spells out there. Yep. I am a pretty big fan of this card because this card basically ensures that I'm never going to miss a land drop again, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Good way of looking so, at it. So, yeah, big, big fan of this. And that's the floor of it, really. I mean, you're not going to miss out on land drops, but you're probably just going to use all of your mana every turn for the rest of the game. And that's sure. not going away. Sure. And I mean, look, we're also setting up scenarios where like you have to work a little bit for that card advantage. If you're just on board turns one and two and pressing your advantage, the Theater of War is just an extra card for free every turn. How do you beat right. that out of a very aggressive red-black deck? It's going to be challenging. Yep. Uh, next Rakdos card is Drill Bit. 2B Sorcery. Target player reveals their hand. You choose a non-land card from it. That player discards that card and it spectacles for B. Brian, is this Thoughtseize? Is it back? 
it, it doesn't matter. It's it's not Thoughtseize. It's not even close to Thoughtseize. It can be a useful tool for aggressive red black decks, but no, Thoughtseize is not back. It doesn't help us to look at cards in that fashion whatsoever. Although everyone loves to look at cards that way. I, I do think this will see some sideboard play. It's a fine option for these decks. Uh, if they are really focused on maximizing their mana, but a lot of times the cards they care about are just, you know, settle the wreckage. Duress does the job very well. If you're in a world where you have to be concerned about things like Lyra, then Drillbit gets a little bit more impactful. But on the whole, this isn't a world changer or anything. I think people are a little overhyped on this one right now. I do too. I do think that this card is good though. It's fine. It's a fine option. It will see some play. I don't necessarily like this in main decks of things unless you're like exactly maybe mono black aggro because then the disruption actually matters, but it's it's kind of whatever. Like, I definitely don't want this in my burn deck or my very aggressive Rakdos deck or anything. Of course, of course. Next card is the uncommon Rakdos split card, Carnival Carnage. The front side is H, instant. Carnival deals one damage to target creature or planeswalker and one damage to that permanence controller. And Carnage is 2BR sorcery, Carnage deals three damage to target opponent. That player discards two cards. This card's good. Why is no one talking about this card? I feel like I this is the first time anyone has mentioned this card to me in any context. This is, again, another fine sideboard option. Think about mid-rangey type mirrors where your opponents are on Golgari and you want an answer to Llanowar Elves in the early game and you want to discard their last two cards in their hand in the late game. I, I love that play pattern. It feels like a sideboard card. It's not a main deck card to me but you'll be happy to have access to this card. Uh, and it hasn't really gotten much attention yet. In more mid-rangey decks, I'm pretty happy about this card because how many times do you shock a one-toughness creature? Like, I, I think you can yeah. very easily play two carnivals and have it just be fine and not be completely dead. And especially the fact that you have Carnage on the backside, which is kind of like Frilled Mystic, like another play pattern type thing that's getting introduced to the format that people aren't necessarily going to be ready mm. to play around and carnival is also just the cheapest way to enable spectacle which i think is awesome especially for theater fours so you would need a target always which is a bit of a downside right like you can't target a player with it you have to have a creature or planeswalker to target with it not to say it doesn't matter but you have to you have to work in some situations so if their board is completely clear you can potentially just carnage them Right. Which is nice. Then it's you're not activating it on the cheap or anything, but right. I, I feel I find it very difficult to see a board state where you need to activate spectacle and they don't have a creature or planeswalker. No, that's fair. That's fair. I'm definitely poking at corner cases. Your case for just including this card in your main deck and being like, okay, well, if it's not good, I have Blightning. I can live with Blightning. And anyone who has ever played with or against Blightning knows that at three mana, it was probably under-costed in standard and would have been yes. pretty acceptable at four, if not for the fact that it relied a lot on Bloodbraid Elf. But the, the play patterns involved in playing against a Blightning can be problematic, to say the least. And it could just be all of these decks want to include a copy of this and take advantage of whatever mode matters at the time. And let's not forget, too, the setup of like a Teferi minusing and just sitting there juicily at one loyalty, waiting to go to the carnival and be picked off. Uh, it'll happen. It's real. And uh, it'll be nice to take advantage of that spot when it shows up. Yeah, th there's just so much incidental damage in Rakdos where initially I was worried about Spectacle. I was like, oh, are we going to have enough ways to turn this on? Like, is 
fanatical firebrand going to be the best card ever now? And now I'm not too concerned about it. I think we're we're doing okay, and the Rakdos cards are pretty well designed and everything. Yeah, I, I am excited for what the mid-range decks look like. I, I don't see a super aggro Rakdos option as it stands right now. They seem to be either more mono black or mono red, but maybe maybe the burn deck fills that slot. Yeah. Uh, next card is another fairly new one. This is Skewer the Critics. 2R Sorcery. This deals three damage to any target and Spectacle R. Jerry, is this the new Lightning Bolt? Uh, for modern burn? Yeah, sure. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> I mean, look, any red spell that can do three damage for one red will be explored in that deck. Uh, it'll be at its best in that deck. If you're top decking it, you don't care that you're paying three because that means you've already burned them a bunch anyway. So in modern burn, I, I totally buy that. As far as this being just a great standard card, I like it a lot more in the context of this burn deck that's shaping up. There's a lot of do three damage stuff, more than we usually see in a standard environment. Are we going to work a little too hard for this in some spots? I think so. I think you really have to, you do have to build with this card in mind. Uh, it's not just an auto include in every red deck ever, which is the way some people are treating it. That's what the new lightning bolt would look like. It, it would be a four of in every red deck. So I won't go that far, uh, but this is certainly a meaningful card that we'll see some play. Yeah. You can't kill land war elves on turn one. So any deck that is looking to really interact with opponent's creatures, you're probably better off playing something like Lightning Strike. If you are a pure face deck, you're probably playing both of them. So it doesn't right. really matter. Right. But yeah, in, in like the more mid-rangey decks, I'm not very high on Skewer the Critics, but this is this is going to be a very, very good lava spike for all the people that want it. I agree. Last Rakdos card is Gutter Bones. B21 Skeleton Warrior. This enters the battlefield tapped, and you can pay one B to return this from your graveyard to your hand. Activate this ability only during your turn and only if an opponent lost life this turn. I don't think there's a ton to say about this one. It's it's good. This card or something very close to it has existed many times. Uh, it's always good enough to see some play in some spots. I don't think Gutter Bones is any different. This is a nice pickup for mono black aggro. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Enters the battlefield tapped, but can block. Mm-hmm. So this this is kind of a frustrating thing for your opponents to have to deal with if they are trying to attack you on the ground. And yeah, this is this is a pretty good way to get in for damage and actually activate spectacle because if they have, you know, growth chamber guardian or whatever, some other two toughness thing, they're not really going to want to block this. Right. So it's good. It's it does its job. It uh fills the hole for mono black because you had Diagraph Ghoul and uh, vicious conquistador as the one drops and this either lets you go up to 12 or cut the conquistadors or whatever so this is pretty nice for spawn of mayhem and stuff like that yeah I, that sounds like a real deck to me i wouldn't be surprised to see a, a good amount of mono black in week one uh it's something that can always be adapted to i think but a nice week one strategy for sure yep and moving out of the guild affiliated cards, uh, let's go to Hero of Precinct 1. This is another very, very new preview. One dub, two, two, human warrior. Whenever you cast a multicolored spell, create a one, one white human creature token. This card's busted. So do you think it sees any? I, I mean, I think it's clearly good enough for the five color humans deck. Uh, it's going to make a lot of tokens there. Elsewhere, do you think it sees any play? 
Yeah, I'm yeah. gonna play this with with Frilled Mystic and Warrant and Teferi and Dovin. Uh, I, I like it a lot with Dovin. It, it plays very well into that setup for sure. Uh, and we've talked at length about the Azorius deck looking more like kind of a tempo-ish aggressive deck. So maybe that's the home for Hero of Precinct 1. Uh, Frilled Mystic, I, I don't know about that. That seems like a bit of a stretch, but you do you, man. Don't let me hold you back. You do whatever you want to do. Oh, just just you wait, man. Dude, they gave me they gave me another young pyromancer. I'm gonna play with it. It feels very pyromancer esque. What do you think this replaces in existing humans builds if you believe it slots into five color humans in modern? Uh maybe kite sail freebooter, maybe the open three mana slot. Uh definitely the versions that were cutting like lowering their mana curve a little bit and playing Mayor of Everbrook. I'd much rather have this instead of Mayor. Oh yeah. Yeah, it seems way better than Mayor. Yeah, I, I think this is a very good card and it deserves to be explored. And when it's going super wide and then Thalia's Lieutenant shows up, it's going to create some problems. Does this revitalize the humans archetype in modern? Are you excited to play humans week one of the new modern format? No, because I'm still hung up on Arclight Phoenix, but I do think it 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 does increase the power level of the deck a little bit. Obviously, it doesn't solve any specific issues, but could also do pretty good work speeding up your clock a little bit. I, I do wonder if there's any good like hybrid humans or anything like that that was like close to playable, which now you might want to lean on a little bit more just that you're spewing out tokens as fast as possible to make your champion of the parishes and uh, Thalia's lieutenants better, but maybe you just don't even need that. Is the green-white hybrid 2-1 that like doesn't let you put things in graveyards, is that a human? It's a dryad. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to go to gather and see what's out there. But yeah, mostly agree this is interesting in the modern context and we'll see what it can do in standard. Yeah, I wonder if there if there are enough cheap things that, I don't know, maybe you could do stuff with like Reckless Bushwhacker or maybe you shave on a lot of the three drop stuff and just try and be like a faster deck. Like that would be a good way to actually handle spirits and KCI and stuff like that is you just make like this insane wide board that those decks aren't really set up to deal with, but might be worse than just playing normal humans. Yeah. Maybe they have to offer something new. I I think it's fair to say that humans is kind of at a low point in modern right now. I don't think it's bad. I think it's a defensible choice for a modern tournament. I just think it's, it's on the verge of being outmoded by spirits and, there's some predatory decks for it out there, and it needs to find a new wrinkle if it's going to succeed. And I think it will because every card ever printed is a human, so it has all the options in the world. Something will pop up and, and fix their issues at some point. Right. There will be another disruptive hate bear type of thing. Uh, I don't think Lavinia is it, but... No. Uh, no. You know, when you do return to the archetype, Hero Precinct 1 is is there waiting for you. But in the meantime, like I, I do like the idea of playing this in some sort of like Azorius, maybe third color type of white weenie deck. Like maybe maybe this with, with Bant is just good. Sure, I could see it. Uh, next up, Angel of Grace, 3-dub-dub, 5-4, Mythic Angel. Oh, I missed this the first time around. This card has Flash. Yeah, it does. Okay, that okay, so that makes more sense. Flash flying. When this enters the battlefield until end of turn, damage that would reduce your life total to less than one reduces it to one instead. I thought it was like a until your next turn thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Flash makes sense. And then uh, for Dub Dub, exile this from your graveyard. Your life total becomes 10. So you can flash this in, get worshipped for the turn, and then hopefully this dies in combat or something, or you already have one, and then you get to exile it, go back up to 10, hopefully stabilize. It's cool. There, There's more to this card than meets the eye. I think the play patterns with this card are going to make it way better than it first reads on its face. When I first saw it, I was a little underwhelmed. Like, I thought it was fine. It just, again, not quite mythic, maybe, except for, like, the, all the rules weirdness going on with it. That very much speaks in favor of it being mythic. Um, but as far as power level, it didn't feel quite there to me. I now think I was wrong. There's something else here. I'm thinking of, like, flashing this in in a combat step against drakes. They can't lava coil it because it is never vulnerable. It's, it's never available when they can play a sorcery. So it trades off with their first Drake. You don't die to the oncoming attack. Their next turn, they have to set up an attack that does at least 10 to you, which is very awkward. And you can do that at any time, instant speed, which is giving you a lot of versatility and how you can play your game at that point. I could see this being a post-board option for Azorius decks. I could see this be a curve topper for the more aggressive Azorius decks we're talking about. If you're playing a mirror match and just kind of swinging back and forth past each other, this is obviously a game breaker in that context. Completely spoils an alpha strike. This card probably does more than it would appear to at first glance. I'm not like over the moon on it. I'm not calling it one of the best cards in the set. I am saying I need to play with it and learn more about it for sure. I think it's pretty interesting as a... sideboard pivot out of Azorius control too, because those decks already had like history of Benalia and stuff in the sideboard and then some Lyra's or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if your deck is playing four settle the wreckage and they're like, aha, I'm only going to attack with like one creature or whatever. And you just eat their thing with this. It's like, that's game over. Yeah. It's lights out. Yeah. It does both modes a little bit better than something like Lyra, which is just like, here it is. If you, if you were smart enough to board in your answer, you've now played around this card effectively. Whereas Angel of Grace continues to present difficult decisions throughout the course of the game. Yeah. So it, it is interesting. This is one of those cards where you're just like, I don't know where this slots in, therefore it's unplayable. But I think it's pretty clear at this point that this set is going to be very impactful and is going to make a lot of different archetypes viable. So Evaluating new cards like this is certainly difficult. Uh, this is another sort of thing that kind of works well with Frilled Mystic, where if they don't walk into your counterspell, you can jam this thing. The fifth power is interesting because even if they have a double rioted Skargan Hellkite, this trades with it. And then you have this thing just living in your graveyard to get you some value later. Mm-hmm. I do think it's a little awkward that if you use this as an Angel's Grace against you know, some sort of red deck or whatever, you're in this awkward situation where they can just like shock you on your upkeep if you only have five mana still. But, you know, right, it, right. It, it does stuff. It has a lot of text. I, I think it feels mythic though. Okay. I mean, I think on a rule standpoint, I absolutely buy that. Again, my power level impression was a little bit low at first. The more I think about the card, and like I said, we've had like two hours to process this card on top of all the other cards we've been processing processing in that time. Uh, as I think about it more and more, I'm more on board with it just being a very good card. Yeah. It might be one of those things that is just kind of a sleeper and then someone plays with it and it's just like you know, another play pattern that gets introduced in the format where you just like get a bunch of people because, you know, they don't remember that this was a thing that, like, you know, we stopped playing around Avacyn a long time ago, right? Right. Yeah. And you remember how impactful that was. Man, week one of this format's going to be wild. I don't think I've ever been more excited for week one of a format and we get the benefit of casting it too. Like what more can you ask for? What an awesome show to do our debut at. 
do we do we have to make like a running tally of all the people or like all the times that people get got by the new cards in the set? I love it. Uh, that'll be step one. We'll have just a a board for the frilled mystics and the uh, the angels that are coming down and ruining people's days left and right. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving over to black cards, we have priest of forgotten gods. One B, one two human cleric. This is it. This is gonna bust open humans in modern. <laughs> Tap. Sacrifice two other creatures. Any number of target players each lose two life and sacrifice a creature. You add BB and draw a card. This is just a bunch of random stuff, but I get it. It's good. It's cool. Uh, it's real cool. It plays very well with gutter bones. So I'll point that out. I mean, it plays very well with a ton of sacrificial lambs that you can use. Uh, it enables your spectacle stuff. It gets you more cards. It triggers your Judiths. This feels like a key part of the aristocrat strategy. If you remember Skurzdag High Priest and how like yeah. unassuming that card was on its face, but it is actually just so, so impactful in those decks. This reminds me a lot of that. This seems like one of the key missing pieces. Again, this card came out in the last couple hours, so it's not like I have a ton of decks built around this, but this is a real part of the aristocrat strategy. It's ramping you into effective plays. It's generating card advantage. It's a sacrifice outlet. What isn't this card doing in that archetype? It, it's the real deal. And uh, I, I'm so excited for that archetype too. And this is a large reason why I'm even more excited now. Yeah, trying to think about what you can actually do with the BB. It's just like, do you play Judith, then activate this? I mean, I guess that would probably come later, because even if you go like Witness into this, into Judith, you're probably not wanting to sack two creatures. But, you know, like say you tap out on your main phase for something and then you activate this. What do you do with the BB? Or are you mostly waiting until you untap with this and have all your mana? But it's like the BB even just returns gutter bones, you know? So it's like it's never just going to be completely dead or anything. Right. And I'm not sure like gutter bones would make my first draft of an aristocrat strategy, but maybe with this card in the mix, it deserves to. And it's just going to matter a lot in that deck. I think this probably changes the context around a bunch of cards and we'll have to reconsider them a bit more carefully. Yeah. I mean, at at the very least, gutter bones helps you break parity because you're each then sacrificing a creature and then you get to do things like draw cards and deal them damage and add mana and stuff. So it's like this card is just like a full on engine. If you have gutter bones, Holy, I'm going to be honest with you. I just realized your opponent sacrificed creature right now. That's how much text this card has. I was already excited about this card. Literally this second. I just realized your opponent sacrificed the creature. This card is busto. Are you kidding me? (laughs) This is so good. Wow. All our listeners just got to hear my epiphany right there. And also see my trouble parsing cards as I try and read them very quickly and prepare for the show. Well, they all have a lot of text. So uh, this is one of the cards that Revival might be important enough where you just want this card on the battlefield at all times between like this and Judith. Like those are just your your engine pieces. I can buy that. Wow, what a card this is. I'm, I'm kind of jaw dropped right now. You might have to do the rest of the cast without me. I'm too into this card. All right, cool. I'll, I'll talk about Electrodominance. Oh, no, I really want to talk instant. about that one. You can't, you can't cut me out of this one. Nope. I like this card. Okay, we, we woke him back up. Uh, <laughs> Electrodominance XRR instance this deals X damage to any target you may cast a card with CMC X or less from your hand without paying its mana cost this is an instant speed blaze that also casts a thing and works incredibly well in modern it's some reason an instant I don't understand it seems good 
It's really good, right? I mean, what what do you think about this card? Let's let's ignore the fact that it may enable some busted things in modern. That's something we're going to have to work on, uh, see exactly where that shakes out. But having more outlets for those free spells is impactful. We'll get to that down the road. What do you think about this is just like a fair card? It seems reasonable to me. So for four mana, I can deal two damage to a thing and play a two drop? Like... It doesn't scale super well, I don't think, or at least on paper, but the games go longer than that, you know? So it's it's just kind of weird. I, I feel like these cards never really look good, but you get so many options over the course of a game that they just end up being good. So I just want to confirm my rules understanding about this card whatever you're choosing to cast with it, it it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be an instant to play that card at instant speed. Correct. Correct. Okay. That's, that's what I assumed. And that's why I'm kind of super excited about this card. (laughs) What about an opponent who is attacking into your five open mana, you electro dominance for three and play goblin chain whirler. That is incredible to me. Like you are just sniping their four drop on the spot. Your three, three first striker moves to another block, kills that creature. I can think of a lot of very active and exciting things to do with instant speed access to a bunch of creatures stapled on to a removal spell. And again, this is ignoring the fact that it can do potentially broken things like two mana wheel of fortune in modern or two mana balance in modern. So we'll see where those decks go. But I think this is just good enough to be a fair piece of the puzzle. Uh, Something like big red could pick this card up pretty easily and be happy about it. I think their curve is so high. Well, they, they have four treasure maps, right? So they're cognizant of that fact they reach a late game point where they'll be able to lean on electro dominance very effectively and there's other options for mana as well you know if we're looking for really greedy decks maybe there's a certain spell that allows us to cast huge instants who knows i will electro dominance for two to kill your thing put in a dire fleet daredevil exile your other thing block your thing (laughs) first strike it down kill your other thing I've I've heard worse chains of play. I mean, I, I think there's enough that it, it's a viable fair card. Yeah, it's a weird one. I don't know. I don't oh, know yeah. if you need to dramatically change the way that you build decks once this is in the mix, or if you just put this in your deck as a value add or what, but it is going to be interesting. Yeah, this is probably another card that's just going to get people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a assuming, lot, a lot they, of assuming people play with it. They should. I think they should. I'm I'm not as sold, but I am looking forward to putting this in decks with Living End and Ancestral Visions and stuff like that. So. Yeah, I want to see what those decks look like. Uh, I, I have some sketches. I've I've messed around with the concept before with things like As Foretold, uh, but Electro Dominant seems like a cleaner way to do these things. Wilderness Reclamation. 3G Enchantment at the beginning of your end step. Untap all lands you control. I assume this is just unplayable garbage, right? You are a psychopath. an absolute unmitigated psychopath i do think this is the most polarizing card in the set though and i i feel like there are people who would take that stance and say it's unplayable garbage i am not one of them i i think this so look the cards kind of have this scale right there's two scales you can analyze a card on how good it is and how broken it can potentially be and those two ratings don't necessarily always match up a card could be like 
pretty mediocre, but has the potential to just go completely off the charts busto. And that's how I feel about Wilderness Reclamation. I think that it requires you to build your entire archetype around it. Sometimes you'll just play a four mana spell and do absolutely nothing. And that feels really bad. You can also do things like take all the turns for the rest of the game, starting on turn four. You can power out tremendous electro dominances. You can have expansion huge expansion explosion. I mean, there's a lot you can do with access to this much mana. And I think it's worth paying the cost. I mean, if you get to your end step after having played this card, it becomes instantly free. Uh, assuming right. your deck is built appropriately. Free spells are trouble. And then on the next turn, it doubles your mana. You're, have you ever played with Mirari's Wake by any chance? Oh, yeah. That was a pretty good card, right? Yes. It's, you had to work for it. You kind of had to work for it. It was a little easier because you got to play like Wrath of God for two mana and then still have mana open and all that stuff. But mm, this is true. With the amount of instant speed stuff that exists, I think that this is going to be a thing as long as you are not 100% required to have this card in in play for your deck to function. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the barriers to get over. You have to figure out how to set this up. Uh, let's look at the support cards for this card as well. I mean, not only are there good instant speed payoffs that we mentioned, but there's good instant speed enablers. Things like Growth Spiral, that being an instant, matters a ton. Just the more instants in your deck, the better this card is going to be. And so I've been working a lot on kind of weird wilderness reclamation setups with things like Emergency Powers. And I was talking a little bit with Canister on Twitter, and my, my setup is like a Nexus of Fate deck that uses Emergency Powers. And he's like, well, don't you just reach a point where you've now Emergency Powered, you shuffled all your cards back into your deck, you haven't made it that much smaller, and then you just fizzle off eventually when you hit like 25, 26 cards, stop taking all the turns. And I think in most contexts that would be correct, but you generate so much mana and you have access to so many cantrips, things like Growth Spiral. And let's not forget, Growth Spiral is constantly sorting the lands out of your deck. So these times when you're generating 16 mana in a turn and playing three Growth spiral Spirals and putting three more lands into play, these all add up over time to thin out your deck. And I'm using Revitalize right now for a lot of my setup as well, another cantrip. When you have access to all this mana, it's very easy to overcome things like a thicker deck. You don't mind that your deck is 40 cards deep because you're going to precognition and it just goes bonkers so quickly. It's hard to underestimate how dramatic this swing is if your deck is built around it appropriately. I think people who are sleeping on this card are doing themselves a disservice. That's not to say I think it's the best card in the set, but it's the one that could potentially be the most broken. That's how I see it right now. Yeah, I agree. Uh, thankfully, there are things like Mortify and whatever. So, like, there are answers that exist right. to things like this. But, yeah, th I mean, just doubling your mana starting potentially on turn three is just kind of busted. And then you just have to figure out what to do with it. And it's like, you have access to Fogs. You have access to a lot of instant speed payoffs. You have uh, a lot of cantrips and, like, Opt, Revitalize, Anticipate. Uh, this with Chemister's Insight is completely reasonable because it gives you like a thing to just immediately spend your mana on after you cast it. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, there is there is stuff. Like a, a thing is happening here for sure. Lots of stuff. And uh, again, if we're talking about like fundamentally broken cards, Nexus of Fate would be very high on my list of cards that are just like, what the hell is going on here? Obviously this plays beautifully with Nexus of Fate. 
that's where my attention is right now. It's where I think there's the most potential to just tear the format in half. All of that being said, there's good counters to all of this. I, I like that you mentioned that. And I'm very much in the theory crafting stage, not the build a real deck stage. Like, can I make this work? And I think the answer is you can make it work. The way this becomes a real deck is finding a fail state that's acceptable. Yeah, yeah that's a good, good way of putting it. Next card is Quench. One you instant counter target spell unless its controller pays two. So miscalculation or rune snag without the added upside. I used to think that a card like this would probably be too strong for standard. And now even with the curves going as high as they do, I think that this card goes dead too quickly and is probably just worse than playing syncopate a lot of the time. Do you think you can build around it going dead quickly? I mean, I I don't even feel, I, I don't think you're wrong. I just wonder if that means we're supposed to update our modes of deck building, not necessarily say this card is unplayable. Like if, if this is the new reality, are there other concessions we're supposed to be making? Uh, such as? Well, I mean, you could use more filtering, right? Uh, we have access to, you mentioned Chemister's Insight. So where this card dies, you just you build more ways into your deck to dispose of this card when it's not meaningful, essentially. Uh, that's possible, but it's not like those decks already don't have enough cards that they want to filter through. It's like right. you have dead removal spells in this matchup, or you, you have too many lands or not enough lands or whatever. It's like then you're just adding more inherent variance where your cards may or may not work in any given situation. Although Quench does kind of work like glue in those sort of situations, right? Where it's like cheap and it handles anything potentially. So it's possible. It's like, I'm, I'm not saying that this card is necessarily bad. I just think that Syncopate is likely a better option. Right. Let's also to acknowledge the fact that we've talked a lot about tempo and exploiting these early turns of the game. If we're not ever getting to the point where these cards have the opportunity to fall off, that becomes a lot less meaningful. I don't know that the tools are quite there to be that aggressive in our tempo decks. I think we are going to have to go a little bit longer. Uh, And your point about Syncopate is a good one. There's so few situations where this is a strict upgrade. I I don't know how often it's going to matter. And the Exile Clause of Syncopate is a big deal as well. So I'm generally with you. I think people have been a little too harsh on this card, but I don't expect to see super wide play. Who plans their turn and then is like, I'm going to play a three mana card with one mana untapped? You know, like... That's the sort of situation where Quench is actually better than Syncopate, and especially in a world with Shocklands and looking at a bunch of these three-color decks that are going to be playing like 10 to 12 Shocklands. Right. Who's, who's going to have a mana untapped, even even if they're like floating a mana on a turn, right? Like playing a three-mana card on a on turn four or something. Like, unless your deck is supremely controlling and they have no reason whatsoever to not pay the two life, then I think Syncopate is just going to get a lot of people still regardless and quench probably wouldn't but i think that's a great point no i I think the mana base is an excellent point last card scrabbling claws nice little reprint uh one mana artifact tap target player exiles a card from their graveyard one sacrifice scrabbling claws exile target card from a graveyard draw card if graveyards are a thing you can play this card that effectively cycles uh for two mana although you do need a target in a graveyard to actually cycle it but yeah, this is this is kind of like a, a neat toy that I'm glad exists, similar to Consecrate Consume out of the Orzov. A good utility card. I'll quickly point out that in a world where you want access to a lot of one mana artifacts, this is a good one to have access to. We talked about what, what's the fountain of, is it Vitality or Renewal? Renewal. 
fountain of renewal. We talked about that and doing things with like Karn setups in the past. Uh, that seems to have mostly gone the way of the dinosaur. Not really what we're looking at these days, but maybe that's worth re-exploring. Good one-drop artifacts are hard to find in standard. Uh, Scrabbling claw claws checks that box for me. Uh, you can do stuff with Psy or Tezzeret and that type of thing. I don't know that that's a real thing. It seems like there's far more powerful options out there, but at least an option to explore and just a good sideboard card in a bunch of other spots if graveyards become a very important part of the puzzle. Yeah, definitely agree. Just one of those cards that I'm happy exists. And like you mentioned, with the artifact sub theme does give you a lot of sideways things that you could possibly be doing in the format, which is cool. I don't have any problems with that sort of stuff existing. And then if uh, graveyard shenanigans are getting you down, can always claw some folks. So it's it's cool that Arclight Phoenix is in the first set and then the next set has a bunch of cards that actually deal with it. Yeah, Whereas before before we felt that a lot. We did. And it, I mean, it seems to be another part of the design philosophy is more answers are better than unbeatable threats. And uh, I couldn't possibly agree more. And I feel like that's, just, that's kind of obvious, but uh, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something there, but I'm happy this is where we're at now. No, we're we're in a good spot, I think. Everything everything's coming up magic. Yeah, totally agree. So that does it for previews this week, although I'm sure that there were like 10 busted cards that were previewed while we were recording this podcast. Probably, yeah. I'm I'm not going to go back and look. We can handle it next week when we have uh the full preview stuff up and everything. Top 10 and show next week. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, dude. I'm I'm excited. I'm going to have to start working on that now. Yeah, yeah, a lot to figure out here. And I'm actually, I'm going to do the top 10 modern cards as my article next week. So uh, okay, I'll, I'll be focused on top 10s pretty hard this coming week. Awesome. Well, uh, once I hammer out a lot of these Frill Mystic decks, I'll send them your way. You can get a sneak preview of the article so then I can help derail you and have nice. you go down the rabbit hole with me. Can't wait. Yeah, question this week uh, comes from Liam Callahan, who is a, a regular, I think, on our question segment because Liam asked some really nice questions, and I really Agreed. appreciate it. I agree. Uh, Liam says, Brian mentioned Zvi Mauschewitz last week, particularly his approach to starting a new format by exploring the mana. What lessons are people going to have to learn about their mana bases to be successful in RNA standards since... This was a thing you brought up, and since you know Zvi personally, uh, and I do too, but you know him, you've gotten to work with him for Pro Tours and stuff. Tell me all about the mana. Well, so I I think it's pretty clear that three-color deck, every three-color combination is on the table at this point. I do think you have to be cognizant still of color requirements. Like if you think back to old Grixis decks that we're doing two X spells in every color. I still don't think that's what you're trying to do here. One of the things I think people are maybe sleeping on is how free double splashes are. It's, it's very plausible to play something like if you go to my article this week and look at these, the status chain wheeler deck I proposed, it's essentially a mono red deck with a copy of fine finality. And the reason you can do something like that is because it's a black green hybrid spell that has 16 green or black sources in the mono red deck and stuff like that. I haven't really seen explored too much. I don't think people are pushing these hybrid cards in that fashion. Uh, So that means, you know, all of these cards, we talked about a bunch of them this week. They're all impactful. They matter a lot and they bring diverse options to the table and they have fail states too. And that's what I really like about something like find finality is that, are you always going to be able to use it as a six mana wrath in your mono red deck? No, it's very easy to find conceivable situations where you can, 
but it's still just the front side, which you're very happy to reload on your meaningful creatures with. So that feels underexplored to me right now. And I would like to see people push that aspect a little bit further. As far as the more strange mana bases you can do, look, unclaimed territory is still out there. And I think it should be a starting point. I, I mean, one of us should probably do an article on it, all the things you can possibly do with unclaimed territory. All these creatures having weirdo types and multiple types, there's a lot of weird overlap you can find if you look hard enough. And the fact that none of it has come to fruition feels like kind of misstepping on one of Zvi's fundamental principles. And, and you know, he basically would assert that you need to see, you need to start your consideration of a format with what the mana allows you to do. That is step one. And ignoring the fact that these unclaimed territory mana bases exist feels like a bit of an oversight to me. There's probably more we can be doing uh, to maximize those. So that's definitely something I want to explore in the coming weeks. On the whole, lessons for mana, though, is learn to be greedy in the right spots. And I think something like find finality in a mono red deck is a good example of appropriate greed as opposed to just I'm going to fit. I'm going to play three colors with zero regard for converted mana cost or excuse me, just mana cost. Uh, across those three colors. Two pips are on the table, three pips are on the table. It's not going to work in most instances. Although I will say that like now things like Niv-Mizzet bolus decks are trivially easy to set up and you can play a couple of black spells with no problem. So look to see how far you can push those things. Be cognizant of not pushing things too far and actually inhibiting your deck. And I think you'll find a lot of rewards in this format. Yeah, one of the things to note is that we do have a lot of seemingly prohibitive mana costs in a lot of the cards like you noted things like nickel bolus niv mizzet and people were trying to do that stuff before when it wasn't really realistic it's like you end up with 14 black sources in your ritual of soot deck or whatever and it's like come on but now that we have all of the shock lands and there are some outside sources uh like the the new druid that can add mana for any color that your lands can produce or there's there's like the gate land potentially or whatever and uh a few different mana rock type things that add mana of any color it's like there are things that you absolutely can do and maybe it's just a question of is doing these weird things like you know playing four or five color decks is it actually worth it are you actually getting the power that would make up for having to pay some extra life by playing more shock lands or mana inconsistency or stuff like that. It's like these things are possible, but are they worth doing also? So yeah, three color decks definitely on the table. Some four color decks, especially with things like district guide or uh, any of the, the random five color producing things like that, that actually can work, but yeah, just make sure that you're actually getting a reward for it rather than not. But as far as, things like find finality in your mono red deck. That is the stuff that I love because we're talking about like warrant warden and me trying to put like frilled mystic in, in every sort of different color combination, even though it's mana cost is very prohibitive and I get to do some, some pretty creative things, which I think is really cool. Yeah. One of the things I'll note is that these splashes and like pushing your mana base, it's not about getting access to powerful cards because every single guild and color combination has access to powerful cards. It's not like something, there's nothing in this format, which is so head over heels above everything else that you're incentivized to stretch your mana base just to include it on power level. What you're stretching for is synergy. 
And, you know, that comes up in something like the status statue type decks, uh, you know, some kind of interaction with Frilled Mystic where you're able to exploit its body comes to mind. Uh, things like Militia Bugler does a nice job of pushing synergy really hard and, and getting access to cards you wouldn't normally think Militia Bugler would have access to. That's what your splashes should be looking for. Not just powerful cards because all these cards are very flat on power level. They're all powerful. Every single guild has access to meaningful, powerful strategies. Look to make synergies as opposed to just points of power. Yep, I'm totally down with that. Things like Llanowar Elves in a three-color deck is definitely very viable now. Mm -hmm. And that means that you have to play like four or five forests on top of your eight shock lands. And if you're trying to curve uh, one of my decks in this uh, Frilled Mystic article is like Llanowar Elves in the Thief of Sanity. And that means that you you probably need to play like uh watery grave too. Like you, you, in order to go land where elves into thief of sanity, you have to have a green shock land into a different mana producing land. Right. So right. you're going to end up with a lot of shock lands, potentially taking a lot of damage. And are there ways to offset that? And yeah, things like wild growth Walker are ways to kind of like free roll that sort of mana base too, which is, a thing that a lot of people don't think about, myself included. I think it was uh, VTCLA who pointed that out to me in the in the Discord, where it's just like, yeah, you just get to play all your lands untapped, and who cares? So that's pretty cool. If there's other incidental life gain that you can play to kind of unlock additional power within your mana base, like that's another cool way to go about it. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it, and I, I hadn't considered that approach. It makes a lot of sense. Because there are drawbacks, and I'm not I'm not really down with playing 12 Shocklands in a format where Rakdos Burn is probably going to be like a very viable deck. So yeah, well, it speaks to that being a, a good check, right? Like there sh- there should be punishment for trying to push your mana base that hard, and maybe that's where Rakdos Burn gets its edge. And if the format pushes too far afield and really looks to do a lot of three and four color stuff, Rakdos Burn is around to keep them honest, and that could be a very positive thing for the format's health in general. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll play a two-color deck now instead of one of these very greedy three-color decks. Or maybe we look towards things like Absorb and maybe Angel of Grace and things like that that are just like natural punishes to that sort of deck. So yeah, a lot of natural churn. One thing that I, I will note is that I hope, I think that this is true, and I hope that it's true, is that these cards are powerful enough to rival things like Is It Drake's and Golgari because that was kind of a problem with the last format. And right. I, cer- I certainly think that like a lot of the three color decks will outpower Golgari. And I hope that that's true. I, I think that is true, but I'm hoping. I, I think so too. I'm not going to lie. It's been a fear point of mine that Golgari will just still be the best deck and dwarf everything else. Uh, the Judith synergies in particular seem really strong. The really busto approaches seem very strong. And then good tempo plans can get the job done. Golgari can have some vulnerability in the air. So I think there's enough angles of attack. There's enough interesting cards. I think we're going to be just fine. And there's going to be a lot of experimentation. Uh, Don't be surprised to see Golgari hold down like week one of a tournament. It's just easy. People will default to what they know and not take risks in a week one tournament, but if you're one of the brave few, you might be able to set the metagame on its ear and the rewards are certainly going to be there. Yeah, week one is tough, especially in a thing like this, because you have cards that are very difficult to evaluate in power level, especially compared to a lot of other cards that are very similar in power level. 
then there's a lot of deck building stuff where it's like, do I play two color? Do I play three color? What's my mana base look like? How do I build my sideboard? It's like there's there's choice paralysis all over the place. So if someone wants to be like, screw it, I'm just going to play Golgari. Like I can't really fault you for that. But no, I want I want to see sweet cards in action. I think we will. All right. Uh, I'm I'm kind of sick. I'm going to use that as my rationale for having you sign us out this week. I don't want to you know stretch my throat or anything. I'll I'll just have you know I've been podcasting for like the last four hours now. I recorded head games right before this. <laughs> <All> <laughs> my right, voice fine, is about fine. shot. You want me to do it? I'll do it. That's game. <laughs>